Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Scott McCartney is made possible with the support of Pratt & Whitney. Pratt & Whitney is committed to working smarter, cleaner, and greener today for a more sustainable tomorrow. Learn more at prattwhitney.com. And by Dohop. Dohop is revolutionizing travel connectivity. Learn how to unlock unlimited connections simply at dohop.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at airlinesconfidential.com. Welcome to Airlines Confidential. I'm Ben Baldanza, and I'm ready to plunge into a great new episode. We have a terrific guest this week, Dave Holt, who led the amazing operations turnaround at Delta. We'll talk all about the challenges of running an airline today and how that affects customers. No hype, Scott McCartney. This show's going to be a thrill ride. You know what I mean? Oh, clever Ben. I do know exactly what you mean. I want to talk about a story that was hyped and about the aviation scarerism that has really exploded in journalism. And I'm really looking forward to talking to Dave Holtz. I talked to him a lot when I was covering airlines for the Wall Street Journal mostly reviewing each year when we did our annual airline rankings. I always learned a ton talking to Dave. Delta did things in reducing cancellations and improving on-time reliability that were really unbelievable at the time, and other airlines are still trying to catch up. So speaking of unbelievable, the hyped story you were referring to, Ben, a United Airlines Boeing 777 left Newark bound for Rome on Wednesday last week, and the cabin had a pressurization problem over Canada. It happens. Airplanes are complicated machines, and despite all kinds of redundancy and safeguards, problems do happen. The plane descended down under 10,000 feet and returned to Newark. End of the story, right? No. How did the New York Post and others report that fairly routine incident? The plane plunged 28,000 feet in 10 minutes. Others described it as terrifying, but there was no passenger comment. The incident even made world news tonight on ABC. Okay, let's do the math. If a plane drops 28,000 feet in 10 minutes, its average descent rate is 2,800 feet per minute. 3,000 feet per minute is a pretty normal descent rate for the 777 and other jets. That's no plunge, which the dictionary defines as dive quickly. Plunge implies that the plane was out of control and in a dangerous descent. If you look at the ADSB data on FlightAware, the plane went from 37,000 feet to about 9,000 feet in about eight minutes, actually faster than the New York Post reported, so a slightly steeper descent rate than normal. The fastest descent rate recorded for the plane was 6,000 feet per minute, but that lasted only briefly at the beginning of the descent. My point is, it wasn't plunging. The Associated Press somewhat more responsibly reported it as a rapid descent. Okay, the speed of the plane slowed as it descended. As pilots know, you descend by pulling back the throttles and pointing the nose down but keeping the aircraft from speeding up so fast that it overspeeds and stresses the structure. Honestly, from the data, 
I think there have been a lot more terrifying approaches into Newark than this one. Here's the problem. Media has these new toys, and news organizations really aren't thinking about whether they are being used properly. Flight monitoring services put out alerts when planes turn around and divert. Before, these fairly routine episodes usually weren't known to breaking news reporters unless there were injuries. Now the routine makes headlines. And the people writing the stories don't stop to find out if this was really a plunge or whether it was terrifying or whatever. It doesn't have to bleed to lead anymore. Every emergency descent is a death-defying plunge as if the plane were dropping from the sky nose first, because that gets more clicks if it sounds dramatic. The 270 passengers boarded another plane and got to Rome, by the way. Sorry to plunge into this, Ben, but that's my rant for the week. Come on, media. Report aviation more responsibly. Hype makes your credibility plunge. Good rant, Scott. I'll admit (laughs) I read the post in part because their app on the iPhone is free. And, And so when I saw that headline, I'm like, oh, my, what happened? And I had this image, just like you said, of the nose pointing almost straight down, oxygen mass deployed, everyone on the plane panicking. Then I read the story and I said, this doesn't sound that bad. And so I didn't think of it in the journalistic sense that you just did. But I think you're exactly right. People don't know what to talk about unless it's breaking news. And so you see something reported as not normal, and that's breaking news, whether it is or isn't. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Scott Delta made some news this week by announcing changes to elite qualifications in its very popular Sky Miles Frequent Flyer program. Starting next year, qualification will be only about dollars spent, no more miles or segments, and some dollars spent on Delta co-branded credit cards plus car rentals and hotels booked through Delta.com will count toward elite qualification as well. United and American have already moved to emphasizing dollars spent rather than miles or flights flown. It rewards high dollar business travelers and takes away the people who qualified for elite status with a lot of cheap flights. I think this makes sense, Scott. Many years ago, when I was at U.S. Airways, we made a move in this direction and were vilified for it. (laughs) Yet for a number of years at Delta, they showed you how you could qualify by spending more money, flying more segments, or flying more miles. So now they're saying the only one that really matters is the money you pay us. What this is going to affect 
is the regular commuters who fly a lot but buy really cheap tickets and they think of themselves as very loyal because they're on the planes all the time. But Delta isn't so sure because they say you're buying really cheap tickets that we could sell to anyone. It's a real interesting thing. It might thin out the overcrowded elite ranks. It shows the importance of credit cards, which are a big source of profits. And what it does is it gives the hotels and rental cars another way to pay the airlines to give frequent flyer credit when people spend with them. Yeah, I, I, that all makes sense, Ben, and yet I think there's a there's a risk here. Um, United and American have done much the same, so it must be working for them. I kind of think it'll make status harder to attain, and uh, that really hurts loyalty. Um, they're, they're not in it for the points. They're in it for uh, the elite status. And if they don't have that, then they're free agents, and it, it could uh, benefit uh, discount airlines or competitors, or people will look at Southwest and say, well, you know, why not? And so I think it'll be interesting to see how this shakes out. I, I, I agree with you, on, particularly on the credit card. We talked before about um, how much of Delta's profits came from American Express and the credit card. And, uh, and I think rewarding credit card spend with status on the airline um, will be a big factor. And that's where Delta's making its money. Well, Scott, what it says is someone who spends a lot on their credit card but doesn't fly very often at all might get the upgrade ahead of someone who flies every week but only buys basic economy. Right, but that person has loyalty to Delta through the credit card, right? They are loyal to Delta. They're not loyal to Capital One or... Visa or or any other credit card, um, they are primarily a Delta customer, even though they're not non-airplanes. You know, along with this, Delta also announced that if you're flying on a basic economy ticket, you can't use the club. And that is consistent with this kind of approach, that if you're buying cheap tickets, we can replace you. But if you're buying expensive tickets, we love you. Yeah. And, and I think, uh, too, with the, with the clubs in particular, there's been a lot of complaints about overcrowding, right? So if you have to thin out the club membership, the club uh, availability, um, do so with the cheap ticket people, not the expensive ticket people. So, Ben, in other news, Austin, Texas announced a 10-year airport expansion plan that will more than double the size of the airport. I know airlines have been clamoring for more gates in Austin. The local economy is booming. There's lots of business travel that no longer wants to connect in Dallas or Houston, and there's no incumbent hub carrier there. Airlines that have lost business travelers post-pandemic can gain business travelers by grabbing market share in Austin. British Airways, Virgin Atlantic, and Lufthansa all have direct flights from Europe to Austin. 
even though there is no hub feed on the U.S. side. To me, Austin is fascinating. Austin could be the most competitive airport in the country if it had the room. It's already overcrowded. It's designed for 15 million passengers a year, but it's handling 22 million now. The interim executive director of the airport says Austin will build an airport bigger than the current one on top of the existing one while it continues to operate. My only concern is why it will take 10 years. Heck, if you can rebuild LaGuardia in nine years, you ought to be able to do better in Austin. Step it up, Austin. And Ben, the airline's earning estimate haircuts continue. American cut its quarterly earnings forecast this past week, citing higher fuel and pilot costs. Frontier also said higher fuel costs were hitting hard. And JetBlue said delivery delays on new jets and required repairs and inspections on Pratt & Whitney engines were crimping growth. In terms of Wall Street, Southwest, JetBlue, Frontier, Alaska, Spirit, and American all closed last week near their 52-week lows. United, Delta, and Allegiant are trading considerably higher than their 52-week lows. Ben, anything we can make of how the market is looking at airline prospects right now? Why do United and Delta seem to be favored? Scott, I think it's a swing of the pendulum. Now that we're in the fall, travel has weakened. And so airlines like Spirit and Frontier have announced changes in their outlook, lowering their unit revenues. Because in order to keep the planes full, they have to continue to lower the price to attract demand. But United and Delta are still benefiting from a lot of international travel. And international travel, especially transatlantic, is still pretty strong. So I think the Positives for those airlines are driven by their non-domestic flying, whereas the domestic flyers only are seeing real weakness. It's interesting. And interesting that Americans not part of that group with United and Delta, right? It's, uh, it, it's trading more like some of the other guys. So, and, and that may... Um, have to do more with the weakness at American than anything else. You're right, Scott. And the reason I said it's like a pendulum is if you remember in 21 and 22, as we were starting to come out of the pandemic, everyone was bullish on American Mm -hmm. because they were not that dependent on international travel. Yeah. Yeah. And had a lot of domestic exposure. Now that same effect is hurting them. Yeah. One other news item of note, Ben. Our friends at Sirium were out with their August on-time performance report. And I thought it was very interesting that Delta, United, Alaska, and American were all above or very close to 80% on-time arrivals. And Southwest was close at 75%. But Spirit, Frontier, and JetBlue were all in the 60% range, 65%, whatever, significantly tardier. 
Frontier also canceled almost 4% of its flights during the month, which is a high cancellation rate. Ben, why do you think the smaller airlines had a tougher time with reliability in August? You know, Scott, for August, I think, and I hate to say this about one of our great sponsors, but I think both of them, Spirit and Frontier, had more problems with the Pratt engines not being ready as much as they needed to. Spirit reported a lot of airplanes on the ground that they couldn't fly because of engines. And I think because their fleets, especially in Spirit's case, are Pratt-based engines that are struggling right now, they don't have the backup that the bigger airlines have. So if they lose a couple of airplanes, they end up canceling flights. American United, Delta, and even Southwest are big enough that they could absorb that better. It's going to be interesting to see how that plays out this fall as, uh, as uh, Pratt works through the repairs. Yeah, and maybe Pratt will come on the show and tell us what they're doing about this and maybe giving us a factual layout of how their issues are affecting airlines in the U.S. and around the world. Absolutely. Look forward to that. Well, Airlines Confidential wouldn't exist without the support of our sponsors. We want to thank Duhop which is revolutionizing travel connectivity. Duhop is a travel technology provider enabling airlines to expand their networks, offer more connectivity, create additional partnerships, and focus on improving the customer experience with more offers, services, and travel options. Airlines benefit from generating additional revenue, from lower costs, and from maintaining full customer ownership. Plus, in the event of travel disruptions, Duhop works with airlines and offers assistance in helping passengers reach their final destination. Visit duhop.com. That's D-O-H-O-P.com. And we do want to thank Pratt and Whitney, even though they're having some struggles right now. They're a company that is critical for this industry. And at Pratt and Whitney, the pursuit of more sustainable aviation is foundational. For decades, Pratt and Whitney has been at the forefront of revolutionary advancements in aircraft propulsion technology. And by working smarter, cleaner, and greener today, they are committed to supporting the aviation industry in its goal of reaching net zero CO2 emissions by 2050. Learn more about Pratt & Whitney's smarter technology, cleaner fuel, and greener business at prattwhitney.com. Dave Holtz is a 43-year Delta Airlines veteran who spent 11 of those years as Senior Vice President of Operations and Customer Center. He was the driving force behind Delta's amazing and innovative reliability improvement. Delta has led the industry in lowest rate of cancellations and best on-time rate in many periods, 
which is particularly impressive when its home is the busiest airport in the world and it has major operations in New York as well as tough winter climates like Minneapolis and Detroit. Dave is currently chairman of operations at Wheels Up, the Delta-owned private aviation venture. Dave, it's always great to talk to you about airline operations and everything else, and uh, I'm thrilled that we can uh, get you on the podcast. Tell us a little bit about how you got started at Delta and in aviation. What drew you to the business? Uh, I'd like to think that there was some grand plan, uh, Scott, that drew me here, but I'll be honest with you, it was uh, during my college years in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, and there were some openings on the ramp that came about suddenly as a result of needing some people really quick down there, and I just happened to be in the right place at the right time and uh, started working part-time while I was uh, going to school. So um, started out uh, as a uh, loading luggage and then eventually transitioned uh, moved around the country full time into the grand job of dumping laboratories. So, you know, yeah, I, I guess you could say I'm a bottoms up type guy, and uh, that's how I got my start. <laughs> that's fantastic. So, you know, operations inside and out, I'm sure. And operating an airline, especially a huge one like Delta, with so many different airplanes is really complicated. We've all seen how tough it can be when major storms hit over the winter holidays and this past summer. Is weather the single biggest factor facing airline operations or is it something else? I think it's a combination of things, Ben. It's a really good question. I think weather is always a piece of it. Uh, weather by itself, you know, to me is just challenging and fun because, you know, you try to right size your operation into weather, make sure you're planned accordingly. It can operate each and every flight that you can safely and efficiently. So weather's a big part of it always, whether it's winter storms uh, or summer storms, which is all part of the game. I think the unknown factor of air traffic control and all the other things that weather brings about make it a little bit more challenging than just the weather itself. Or if it was just weather itself in an unconstrained airspace or unconstrained airport, um, we'd be able to right size things pretty well. But trying to figure out the other nuances that affect you, you know, whether it's the tarmac or gating or air traffic control or the big pieces that you have to put together with weather uh, to really try to get everything exactly right. But, you know, the, the, I would say uh, it's not a game, but certainly that logistical game of of trying to put things together is one of the most challenging parts of running an operation and truly one of the parts that I enjoy the most. So uh, I, I did want to talk more about air traffic control. We've, we've talked a lot on the podcast uh, this summer about controller shortages and airline schedule cuts in New York. How do you see the air traffic control problem in this country? Well, I, I think it is a problem, and I think it's a long-term problem, which needs a long-term solution. Uh, we went through many different um, gyrations and orchestrations of uh, uh, solutions, you know, some of which worked, some of which didn't work. Um, it, it really is. It's not in... Um, air traffic control problem. It's a partnership issue between everybody within the industry, airlines, 
uh, air traffic control, airports, uh, everybody uh, combined. And I think one of the things we've not done in this country is take a long-term enough view of that. I think the uh, women and men that uh, comprise the air traffic control system are some of the hardest working, best people I've ever worked with in my life. So um, it, it's certainly not the air traffic controller that's at fault. I don't know that we've ever treated this in the, in, as a long game. And when I think about it in the private industry context, you know, we look at things, you know, one year, two year out, but we're also thinking five to 10 years out. Um, I don't know that we, with the year to year, uh, budgetary constraints, uh, around air traffic control that we've ever taken a view of that, nor have we ever, ever really had administrators in there that have stayed, you know, or had a 10 or 15, 20 year career in there. So, you know, you're, you're continually changing out leaders, you know, in the air traffic world, uh, in a lot of cases. And sometimes that business plan, you just can't write a 10 year business plan when you're not sure of funding as you go forward. So I think those are the pieces where if someone were to ask me what, what a solution might be, it would be a complete industry partnership, uh, somehow financed in a way, whether that's through industry or through, through government itself, that's financed long-term with a long-term view on what we need to do to upgrade not only facilities, but technology and everything else associated with the air traffic system. So more of a business, private business type approach, if you will, at least that mindset, it certainly doesn't have to be private and can be worked in the public sector as it is. I don't, I don't have any problem with that, but it's just something that we have to take a long-term view of as we move forward. Hmm. Well, tell us your secret sauce about how you dealt with all your people, even running a small airline like Spirit. I found it amazing that we had crews all over the country and out of the country and just getting everybody working together is a huge issue. How did you deal with pilots, flight attendants, airplanes, maintenance, airports, and all of this to send a real consistent message of what you're trying to do? Well, that's a great question. And one of the first thing you do, any decent leader will surround himself or herself with the best team available, which is absolutely what I did. So that great partnership on the leadership and the, on the front line ranks. But I will tell you, it's, it's, it is a, a complex situation. And, you know, my background is such that I, I'm not really an aviation guy. I'm more of a logistics and a puzzle guy. And so I always enjoyed that piece of it. And there, you're right. You've got to put together to begin with, you've got to size it correctly. So as an airline, you've got to size your resources, your pilots, your airplanes and flight attendants and everything else um, to the size of the network you want to go fly. And you've got to be able to do that successfully. So that takes a lot of work on the planning side. So the better the plan, obviously, the better result. And then once you get a solid plan in place, then it's up to us on the operations side every day when it's the plans thrown into the office is how we manage that correctly. And I think the big piece is not only how you manage it correctly, but more importantly, probably how you manage defect. And I think that daily, weekly, monthly defect is something that you're always putting plans, contingency plans, adjusting plans and trying to reset that network. So I think as you get better and better in running an airline, you get better and better of resetting the airline when you have 
defects and i think that's what makes you a a, a better operator and a and a better leader as far as running an airline the end result of all that is always aimed at the customer you know we want the customer to feel the least amount of defect possible and you know we, the customer even on a good day doesn't need to know that we switch their crew three times their airplane five times all they need to know is they've got one set up uh on time for when they go to depart and, and nobody needs to know the background of how we got there and that's a piece you try to do seamlessly in the background and make sure that the customers have success. So, Dave, you and I talked just about every year when I did the Wall Street Journal annual airline rankings, which focused on operations. And, and I saw up close this remarkable change in reliability where Delta was achieving numbers no one thought possible at a big hub airline. Um, I don't know if you remember when I tried to write about the turnaround, Richard Anderson, then the CEO, repeatedly said no. Uh, since he didn't want to give away any secrets. Uh, but you and others helped convince him that the story should be told uh, and that it, it was an amazing story when we did write it. Tell us some of the things you did to change the airline's reliability. Well, I think the first thing you have to do is change the mindset of not only uh, employees, but also the customers. So, you know, when we started driving for zero defect or that zero cancellations in a day or, you know, 100% on time, which, of course, you never quite get. But uh, I think that's changing everybody's mindset. I remember uh, when we first started to, as I call it, get good back around 2011, 2010, 2011. I remember that a lot of uh, customers weren't ready to get on the airplane because they're used to us being 10 and 15 minutes late. All of a sudden, they're leaving on time. So that was a little bit of a learning experience for uh for everyone, inter- internally and externally. But one of the reasons why I was so open to uh, discussing those things is that there is no, you know, I checked, Scott, I wanted to uh, go to the library and buy a book that said how to run a great airline, and there was none. So <laughs> thereby we had to go figure it out on our own, if you will. So, uh, we, and we had a lot of fun doing that. But the truth of the matter is, and I think I've told you this before, if I wrote a book, and I'm never writing a book, but if I wrote a book, it would be titled something like 10,000 Small Steps or 100,000 Small Steps. Because that's truly what it takes to get you there. It's it's planning on the maintenance side to reduce cancel, to reduce you know maintenance delays and cancellations. It's on the customer service side, the pilot side, the flight. Every piece uh, of that orchestration of our symphony of running an airline has to come together. And you, you can get four out of five right, or six out of seven right. If you don't get that last one right, you're not going to go on time. You're not going to be able to complete every flight. So there was just thousands and thousands of improvement over the course of one, two, three, and five years that we eventually got better and better and just drove the airline to greater and greater heights. And we did some silly stuff along the way. I mean, we did stuff like ferry airplanes farther than normally we would have before to to make sure a flight left. Instead of combining loads and canceling a flight, we took another airplane over there and did it. And in the microcosm of looking at that just that decision, it might have not made financial sense. But when you look at it over the course of, of time and realize that time and time again, your customers get where they're going, you realize that there's a benefit to be paid by for that. And the customer will pay more for that reliability. So you can't have strong customer service without incredible reliability. And that's what we try to provide. That makes so much sense, Dave. And that operational improvement that you led raised the industry power and forced other airlines to pay more attention. Did you see competitors make real changes or did most of them just add block time? I I think it's a combination. I think they realized, because Delta always had 
Uh, we were in the top two or three of block time. Um, and, and we did that for a reason. We had a highly connected uh, airline uh, and you just couldn't be, you know, if you think about Atlanta as an example, you can't come into Terminal F and uh, leave a half hour later from, from Terminal A if you don't, and if you get in 15 minutes late, you're misconnecting people, right? So to us, A0 became the, uh, the, the, the marching order is, you know, we, we're not even as concerned about when we leave as when we get there and we had to get people there on time and not within 15 minutes of the government calls on time within zero minutes, which is what we needed for connectivity. So once we built that mindset, um, it just made our numbers and our customer service continue to get better. I think other airlines saw that and realized the benefits of getting, you know, uh, underpinning their operation with good reliability as well. And I think I think some of what we did help did help drive change. Um, maybe a little bit in block time, but more the other airlines got busy. Truth of the matter is, um, Delta couldn't be a great airline and other airlines be poor airlines. That just doesn't happen in our industry. Um, so you want other airlines to do well. We want to raise the bar, lift, you know, uh, what's the old, uh, you know, high tide lifts all boats. Um, that's what we wanted it to be. We always wanted to be the uh, boat floating the highest, but uh, we wanted the industry to do well. And if we help do that, we're, we're happy about that. You know, Gordon Bethune, who we've had on the show, was famously quoted as saying, the industry's only as smart as its dumbest competitor. So I assume you'd agree with that. Yeah, I think to some extent that's true. I, I think that, I think, and I've talked to Corn before, and yes, it, it's absolutely true that uh, everybody has to do well. And the pieces that affect every airline, such as air traffic control, weather, and all those other things, anything we can control within there, we want to control to the best of our abilities because all the customers benefit in the end run. And, you know, if, if air service except for Delta Airlines was completely unreliable, it's, it, we would have trouble too providing, uh, you know, getting uh, top revenue for our tickets and all the rest because we would be seen as one of those, just another unreliable carrier when in fact we weren't, you know. One of the things about the airline industry that was always amazing to me was how long it takes to garner a halo, you know, and to get one and then, you know, how hard it is to keep it as well. So, you know, halos don't grow very quickly on airlines or unreliable businesses. So it took a lot, a while for us to get there. And I always laugh about it. It took a year or two after we got there before people realized that, hey, they're the best in the business. And it took even an advertising campaign around canceling cancellations and things like that to, to help people understand what we were doing, you know, and I think that's what kind of drove our competitors as well as they didn't want to see us out there getting those headlines. They wanted to be a part of that as well. I remember hearing from readers who were sort of shocked after reading stories about it that, you know, they haven't canceled a flight in a long time, almost like they were disappointed that they hadn't been canceled in a long time. <laughs> but what what do you, this leads into sort of a, a forward-looking future question. What do you see ahead for airline operations? It's been a tough summer. Um, do you think travelers and airlines um, with, with severity of storms increasing, continued air traffic control problems and all, are, are we just going to get more accustomed to delays? Do we need to change the mindset back a bit? I, I don't know that we're going to get more accustomed. I think 2022 and 23 especially, you know, 2023 surpassed a lot of 2019 levels uh, pre-COVID in uh, flight volume and some of the things that we're doing. I don't know that everybody in the industry was as prepared for the return to travel as quickly as it came about as they were perhaps in 2019. So I think you're seeing performance just a little bit worse now 
than it was with those same levels um, back in 2019. So I think there's a, uh, you know, I think everybody got molded into uh, cleaner skies and uh, less impact uh, on the ATC system. And you're seeing now so that ramp up very, very quickly. And I don't know that we're prepared necessarily. Also, airlines and the air traffic control system uh, lost a lot of people during the COVID years. A lot of people chose to take retirement packages and all the rest. And uh, so you're also seeing the, uh, you know, a lot of new people in industry. Uh, the good thing about the FAA as well as the airlines is it's never been safer. The product is safe and we'll, we're, you won't sacrifice that at all. The result, though, is maybe that, you know, we're slowing down traffic a little bit more than we did in 2018 and 2019. And, you know, so without maybe the uh, old veteran guard up there, if you will, that were used to handling those volumes, we're just a little bit slower. And I think we're, we're seeing the results of that. It's also been a very tough summer uh, as far as weather, you know, when you contrast year over year, a little bit more weather in 2023 than we've had previous years. So all of that added up, I think, makes the industry tough right now. But I have no doubt that we'll get a handle on this as we go forward. We'll start to staff up properly at the at the FAA levels and some of the airline levels will be able to, to go forward successfully. But, you know, I've looked at these things over the course of the last 20 years, um, being in the business over 40 years. And you see those ebbs and flows of how we handle growth and contraction and growth again. It's, it's a cyclical industry by both uh, how performance goes as well as uh, by volume, you know, that's out there. And I think, you know, I'm, I'm bullish on where we're going to head as, uh, as groups, uh, maybe short term, we got to take a few more delays, but I think we'll get our arms around. Dave, tell us what you're up to with wheels up and what's it like in the private aviation world compared to the airline world. That's Great question, Ben. And I've been over here about a year and a half now, wheels up. I, I tried to sneak out under the cover of darkness, but uh, <laughs> a couple of, couple of the guys at uh, Delta and Wheels Up grabbed me and wanted me to come over here and peek under the tent. And Wheels Up was going through an interesting time in that uh, they're the combination of uh, five or six different certificates that were all flying under the Wheels Up brand. Um, a great brand. And uh, I, I came over here to see if I could lend a hand or help out and came to find out uh, after about six months, um, that I love the place. Their CEO, Kenny Dichter, asked me to take uh, a more leading role as the chairman here uh, in the last year, which I agreed to because I absolutely love the culture and, and the people here at Wheels Up. And it's a learning experience for me, even at this old age, to uh, to work in the private industry as compared to the commercial side. Um, a little bit different customer base. I mean, uh, airline customers expect the world. Um private customers expect a world plus. So, you know, it's uh, been kind of fun to, to deal with them and understand that uh, the rich and famous want uh, the convenience of being able to walk through a uh, an FBO or a small airport terminal and get right on the airplane and be gone in five minutes. So quickly realize that while a lot of people think you're selling luxury in the private space, you're really uh, selling time and the time to uh, on the plane, off the ground, land and get off the plane and get in your car and go somewhere uh, is what they really value. So as you know, from my history with uh, the airlines, with Delta, and that punctuality and reliability that I pushed so hard for, it's even doubly important here. And what I found when I came over is no one really met uh, in the private space, not wheels up or anyone, measured on time that closely or, or took enough care when it came to uh, providing that time back to our customers. So we're working really hard on that. We built an operations center here in Atlanta and we're starting to combine those uh, five certificates for down to three. And we're going to combine those into one certificate by the end of the year, or early next year and go forward as one wheels up certificate, which is going to drive all the synergies and improvements, obviously that, that 
done it up, be done at other airlines when we've combined entities and, and mergers and such. So my bra- background of going through a number of mergers and number of regional airline combinations uh, kind of lent itself to uh, uh, the, my new role here, which, I, by the way, I'm really, really enjoying. Well, well you clearly don't like small challenges. <laughs> Only the big ones. <laughs> yes, yeah, so, yes. <laughs> so last question, as a, as a diehard Green Bay Packers fan, how did you take the injury to Aaron Rodgers after just three plays with his new team? Yes, that's a great question, Scott. I, <laughs> it, it's funny. I'm a I'm a Packers fan first and a, an Aaron fan second, but I have met him a couple times actually and uh, got an autographed jersey from him that's hanging on my wall in, in the cabin up in Michigan. So um, uh, I, I I do hate for it to happen, and uh, you know it. Uh, I, I feel for the Jet fans that. Uh, um, we're so looking forward to, and I was looking forward to that first game with Buffalo and uh, four plays, and Aaron's gone. But uh, now it, uh, it that's part of you know, unfortunately, part of life in football. And I, I couldn't feel worse for him, uh, you know, and going going forward. You know, he says he's not done yet. You know, so hopefully uh, uh, he'll get that thing uh, rehab put back together and be back next year for him. Out of the maintenance hangar. Dave, this has been been fabulous. We really appreciate it. It's great to talk to you, and uh, and I think really insightful to to hear more about the complexity of the operation and the and the challenges that airlines face. Oh, thanks, Scott. I appreciate that, and Ben, and like I said, uh, Scott, we've been good partners over the years in in all our interviews, and I always appreciate you taking the asking the good hard questions of me and really understanding the industry. So, uh, anytime you need me, happy to speak with you. Mm-hmm. Appreciate that very much. Thank you so much, Dave. And we'll be right back with more Airlines Confidential. Promotional consideration by thearchive.net, the hub of the history of commercial aviation. Thearchive.net is now boarding. Thanks again to Dave for some great insights into running operations at a big airline. The whole industry can learn from him. Scott, we burned through the questions in the mailbag for this week. So listeners, send us some new questions. Go to airlinesconfidential.com and scroll down to the question and comments form. So Scott, I want to put a question to you. Since we're talking about airline operations, Let's stick with that theme. What question do you think travelers have about how airline operations work? Oh, that's an easy one, Ben. Why did those bastards cancel my flight? It's because there weren't enough bookings, isn't it? As you know, Ben, in a sense, passenger suspicion is often true. And in reality, it really isn't. Airlines would almost always rather fly the trip. Crews get paid anyway. Airplanes have to be in the right place. Maintenance schedules could be affected. The return leg of the trip may be packed with passengers. That said, when airlines have to thin out schedules because of storms or mechanical problems or crew shortages or whatever, they do look for lightly booked flights to cancel. Inconvenience the fewest number of passengers, right? That's right, Scott. But it might not always be the flight with the fewest passengers. It might be the ones with the fewest connections or the ones that have a flight 
option to rebook sooner or mm-hmm. things like that. So sometimes it looks like it's being canceled because of the load, but that's never the case. Yeah, it, it's really an interesting science, isn't it? Okay, Ben, an operations question for you. Why do airlines allow commuting? I know it's a time-honored part of the business and beneficial to management because they don't have to pay to relocate employees, beneficial to pilots and flight attendants because they don't have to relocate the family, and can bid in a base most beneficial to them based on their seniority. But commuting was the safety concern resulting from the Colgan crash. Those pilots commuted overnight with inadequate rest and weren't fit to fly. Where's the safety outrage over this? Commuting was identified by the NTSB as a contributing factor, and the NTSB urged airlines to address fatigue risk associated with commuting. The National Academy of Sciences did a study ordered by Congress in 2011. It found one quarter of 25,000 pilots at 15 passenger airlines live more than 750 miles from their work domicile base. The study concluded there was insufficient evidence to find commuting was a safety risk because more study was needed. But it seems nothing has happened. What other business allows workers to change offices or plants without actually moving? It seems like it introduces complexity into daily airline operations and may be a serious safety concern. Indeed, a pilot self-assessment study conducted by Cranfield University in the United Kingdom found commuting pilots report greater stress and lower performance than non-commuting pilots. Why is commuting so prevalent in the airline industry? Well, Scott, you give me the tough one. (laughs) I actually think it's prevalent in the U.S., but not so much everywhere else Mm. in the world. And I think it's just a long-time culture issue. Pilots and flight attendants, because they fly, feel that they can live anywhere as long as they're at their base for their scheduled flight. At Spirit, they have a rule in their pilot contract that after flying a set of trips, they get a minimum of four days off. And that was driven by commuting. It's so they could spend a day going home, have two days at home, and a day getting back to work. Mm. That's how the four days came about. I think it's a real third rail issue. And given right now the leverage in pilots for pay and such, no airline is going to take this on. Interesting also is that airlines broadly support this idea by allowing pilots from any airline to fly any airline to get to their base. Mm -hmm. So at Spear, for example, we had pilots flying in on Southwest, United, Delta, JetBlue, and more to make their trips, and the industry supports that idea. So I think it's going to be a long time before that issue 
is addressed. And when you think about the priorities of what airlines need to focus on, I don't think they're going to address this one. Well, sadly, I, I think you're right. It it does bother me, and, and I hope maybe some others, um, that out of the Colgan crash, we got the 1,500-hour pilot rule, but it seemed like the real issue was the commuting. And it, at least one of those pilots, uh, I think, flew FedEx overnight to get to, I think it was Newark, and uh, and then crashed on a couch in the in the crew restroom. Um, it, it just was not adequate a, a night of adequate rest before getting into the cockpit to to fly an airplane. So I, I think we, you know, the Colgan crash. All all respect to the families that have worked so hard lobbying for uh, greater safety. But I think the uh, uh, we may not be addressing the real safety issue here. Well, Scott, that's right. But again, if you look at what people earn in the regional space, it's probably tough to live in New York for that wage. Yep. So the question is, would you allow a commute from a shorter distance than cross country? Or would you subsidize their apartment in New York or what else? Well, that's that's a great point. And, and I think my answer off the top of my head would be, hey, if airlines are going to allow this and it's to the benefit of the airline, then airlines need to provide adequate rest facilities. Um, and it's not a couch in a crew room. And, you know, we all know stories of, of crews sharing crash pads and all that. And, and I just don't think that's conducive to good rest. Um, if you recognize that this practice is going on and you want well-rested pilots, then I think the companies need to step up and, and do something about it if they're, gonna, if they're going to allow this. So I think that's a great point. I mean, either you have to uh, pay more in housing allowances or... or um, if you want pilots to move to New York, you've got to help them financially with that at the regional level in particular, but otherwise uh, put them in a hotel room. You know, and with a lot of pilots listening to this show, if you have a view on commuting, let us know. This is a real good discussion for the industry. And with that, that's Airlines Confidential for this week. Have a great week, everyone. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with more next week on Airlines Confidential. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.